I'm going to jump right in. I, I have a lot for us, as those of you who have, have been around uh, for the last few months are probably expecting at this point. Uh, I come in with a lot, and uh, a lot on my heart, a lot from the Word that I, I want to bring to you. And so uh, let's get right in. And I, I want to begin by means of introduction, um, by bringing something to our attention. There are, I think, two questions that everyone in this room, in fact, everyone in the world, I would argue, are asking. Um, They might not be asking it in the same way. They might not even be aware that there are questions that they have. Uh, They might not be asking it with the same passion or vehemence. But I think there are two questions that everyone is asking. Number one, what is wrong? What is wrong? And the second question that kind of emerges in light of the first, what, who can make it right? There's this Strange sense, I think, that we all have that something's wrong. Something's not the way it should be. What is, is not what ought to be. And we all kind of have this sense of it. And we all put our own spin as to why and what we do in light of this. I wonder if you've felt this recently. I I have... um, I felt it this last Sunday night. I got texts coming into my phone, right? And first one comes in, is telling me about someone in this church. Little little kid in the ER at midnight is broken. Stomach, things not working, throwing up, crying. What is the little boy doing in the hospital on a Sunday night? What's wrong? And in between texts regarding that, I was getting texts from my best friend in Colorado saying his wife's dad, so his father, or I'm sorry, his wife's mom, so his mother-in-law is now being put in hospice. Cancer just shot through her lungs. They don't know the time frame yet. And then Monday morning, dead. Gone. And this is just if this is just my life. You turn on the news, you whatever. It's 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 horrible. And everything in us goes, something is wrong. This is not how this place is supposed to be. Somehow we're aware that pain and death are kind of these intruders into the human story. That we were created, we were designed for something right. And this has gone wrong. So, second question then, who or what can... Make it right. Where do we turn? I'll tell you where, um, where my, my buddy's father-in-law turned as he's watching his wife there. He's in utter denial and had been for months. Didn't even let on to them how serious the condition was because he couldn't deal with it himself. But even as he's watching his wife dying, he's still thinking, no, no, no. I know what will make it right. We just got to get that next treatment. It's coming tomorrow. Or the new doctor. He's coming tomorrow. This medicine. We just, one more thing and she'll be fine. Not going to work. My buddy's wife was there and she's going, Dad, you got to let it go. She is dying. And there's nothing that science can do to buck her flatline back into rhythm. It's not going to happen. So you just hit your knees and you go, all this is wrong. 
Where do we look to get it right? Luke knows we're asking these questions. And Luke knows that God has given the answer. The one answer, the only answer. Jesus Christ. In Him alone, we see what is wrong being dealt with. What is truly and deeply wrong being dealt with. And what is right being ushered in. He is the one in and through whom God is making all things new. So Luke writes his gospel to foreground Christ, I would argue, as the pioneer of God's new creation. The one who's going to take what's wrong and make it right. Let's read Luke's gospel here. Chapter 1, verse 1. If you don't have a Bible... Please raise your hand. Ushers are coming. We study, we study the scriptures in this church. So uh, get ready. Luke 1, verses 1 through 4. I'm going to read it, pray, and then we will uh, get in. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Would you pray with me? Jesus, um, trial and, 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 and suffering and being aware of all that's wrong can be very disorienting. And we thank you that your word cuts through, cuts through the noise and brings the solution, sets our eyes on the one who can make things right. Lord, I'm praying that you would do that today. By the power of your Spirit, that you would come, accompany the preaching of your Word, and direct us to yourself. We're all asking, what is wrong? Why? And who can help? God, would you exalt your Son today as the only answer? In our eyes, we pray. This in Jesus' name, amen. Okay. We began last week our journey through Luke's gospel. Uh, we didn't get very far. We're uh, still in verse 1. <laughs> but the title of the series is Luke, All Things New. Last week, I sought to answer the question for us, why Luke? Just some introductory messages here. Why Luke? Why do I feel like the first years of my pastorate here I'd want to spend going through the Gospel of Luke? Tried to answer. That was last week's message. This week, looking at the, the series title again, I want to say, why all things new? Why do I think that those three words encapsulate the fundamental thrust of this Gospel? This sermon, while a vindication of my sermon series title, is at bottom an exposition of the first verse of this book. Let's read it again here. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. In particular, I draw our attention to the second half of this first verse. The things that have been accomplished among us. And even more narrowly, <laughs> I draw our attention to that single word, accomplished. 
is I believe that as we press at this word, as we press into it this morning, a whole world of glory, quite literally, opens up. New creation just kind of explodes out. Because I believe that here at the very beginning, Luke is already showing this Jesus, he's the one who's going to bring in all things new. It's him. He's the one who accomplished all these things among us. So setting the agenda for the morning then, I quickly want to define the word accomplished. Okay? I want to try to define that for us. And then I want to trace the appearance of one of its close synonyms within the Gospel of Luke. And what this will do, it will drop us into three significant scenes in the life of Christ in Luke's Gospel as he records it. And the the vision of Christ that will emerge as a result of this is Christ is a new creator who, by means of a new exodus, is establishing, bringing in new humanity and ultimately new creation. All things new from this Messiah. So the simple study we're going to do here is going to help us get a handle on the overall movement of Luke's narrative. Okay? It's kind of the hope. Hopefully I don't lose you along the way. (laughs) Let me begin then with the definition. What is meant by this word accomplished? I actually think that the ESV doesn't help us very much here. Um, it's true. Uh, what was that? Oh, okay. Uh, it's true that Jesus accomplished things among them. That's right. But there's a nuance to this word, especially as I think it it should be with Luke and a lot of other translator, translators and translations do it. Uh, there's a nuance there that I think is more. It's more helpful to to translate it as fulfilled. Fulfilled. The things that have been fulfilled among us. Now, I wonder if you see the difference and why I would even make a big deal out of it. Accomplishments. Okay. There are plenty of people that have accomplished amazing things throughout history. And many people compose narratives, write about it, and all this sort of thing. I thought about Michael Jordan, right? Many accomplishments. Many accomplishments. And what? you got video montages and interviews and books and all this products and even songs. I want to be like Mike. You know, written about his accomplishments. You remember that? Am I, am I older? No. You, I don't know. Am I, am I older? I'm like the youngest guy in this church. <laughs> okay, second youngest I hear. Yeah, but with my haircut, I think, I, I think at least I look like the youngest. <laughs> But is that what we're talking about here at the beginning of of Luke's gospel? That Jesus did some great things. No, we're talking about more than that. Talking about more than that. And I think the word fulfilled gets at it more. Fulfilled has historical precedent to it. It has this kind of anticipation. It has this sense of things that were spoken of in the past are now being realized in the present. This is something big going on here. Michael Jordan, when he won that sixth championship, wasn't fulfilling some ancient oracle. He was accomplishing something great. Sure. But Christ is not only accomplishing something great, He is fulfilling something ancient. Right? When He arrives on this earth, we watch as His life, death, and resurrection bring to climactic fulfillment thousands of years of promises, prophecies, symbols, and shadows. The things that have been fulfilled among us in Jesus. Now, I think this is an important distinction to make here in America. Right? I mean, we live, we live in a culture that just prizes all things new, right? And kind of despises all things old. It's all about, we, we, we put our hope, we set our sights on the new politicians, the new leaders. Okay, Obama didn't really do it. He, his whole slogan was hope, but we're not sure it actually worked. So this new one's going to bring it in. New technologies, New, whatever it might be. 
We've tried all the old stuff. Let's bring in the new. Maybe there's hope there. That's what this this dad, this, this husband was doing. A new medicine, new treatment. Maybe that's what'll do it. We kind of live in a culture that's like that. And what we get when we come to Luke, as we kind of saw last week, he wants to highlight from the outset that all things new is emerging from all things old. This is because, this is because God has been moving towards a new creation ever since the first went wrong at the fall. He's been moving towards this from the very beginning. So we don't just get on the latest bandwagon, guys. Oh, if I get that new relationship, that new job, that new whatever, I will feel right inside. No! We get on to that ancient plan. We don't trust in the latest and greatest, but in the ancient of days. And that plan that is ever advancing, eternal, unchanging, and that in Luke's Gospel we see reaches ahead in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, having defined the word as fulfilled, I'm ready to trace its synonym. And you say, why synonym? Why not trace this word? This is the only time Luke uses the word in all of Luke Acts. Um, the, the, the particular word here, um, and I think it's probably because of stylistic reasons, because this is his prologue, and he's actually a very sophisticated writer in the Greek. And so he's kind of setting apart his prologue stylistically, it would seem. But this, there's a very close synonym that he uses in other places. Okay, And that's what we're going to go with. carries the same exact idea. And as we do this, as we trace this synonym, I think what we'll find is it's going to unfold for us the meaning of this accomplished among us in verse 1, this fulfilled among us in verse 1. We'll start to get what he's talking about back in the very first verse. One important thing to highlight, the difference between the way that Matthew and Luke talks about and uses this actual word regarding fulfillment. Okay? If you've read Matthew's Gospel, you see him all over the place talking about specific Old Testament promises, prophecies that Jesus, the Messiah, is fulfilling. He's interested more in a Jewish audience, and so he's trying to show all over his gospel, Jesus is the fulfillment of this prophecy, this prophecy, this prophecy, this prophecy from the Old Testament. Luke doesn't use the word nearly so much, but when he does, he has this broader, all-comprehensive kind of thing in view. He's trying to say not just that Jesus is the fulfillment of this or that explicit prophecy, but that Jesus is the fulfillment of it all. He has these programmatic statements. The law, the prophets, Moses. uh, Yeah, the law, the prophets, Psalms. Jesus fulfilled it. We'll see that. So he's talking about the whole Old Testament being summed up in Christ. And this is why... As we'll see, when Luke does speak of Christ's fulfilling something, he has the broadest and most sweeping of Old Testament anticipations in view, namely, new creation, all things new, comprehensive redemption and renewal. This is what he's trying to show. Jesus, yes, he's this and that prophecy, but he is everything, and he's bringing in the new heavens and new earth. That's what we'll see. Three extremely significant points in his gospel. Luke is going to speak of Christ as fulfilling something. That's where we're going to go now. Okay? First, a new creator. Go to uh, Luke 4, verses 16 to 21. That's what we're going to see. Luke 4, verses 16 to 21. This is the one we'll spend most of our time on. He's being put forward, I'm going to argue, as a new creator here. Jesus has just been baptized in the story of of the gospel. He's just been baptized and what happens at his baptism, but the Spirit of God comes down upon him, right? 
And then what? He's led by the Spirit into the wilderness where he, he, he's tested by the devil. And after overcoming that combat, if you will, in the wilderness, this is the story Luke records. He comes into his public ministry. He's now unveiled before the public. He's now stepping out to start moving in, to start advancing, start doing some work. And this story, Luke 4, 16-21, the very first story that Luke decides to highlight from his public ministry. That's significant. We don't have time to talk about all the reasons why. Just know this, 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 this scene here is, 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 if you will, programmatic for the whole rest of the gospel. It's kind of the whole gospel in miniature. But we don't have time to look at all that. We do know, though, that it's very important. Let's read it. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as, he, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. I just love that. I just figure, what is he going to say? And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. There's our word there at the end. Fulfilled in your hearing. And what a scene. The reading is particularly drawn from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. And then with all eyes fixed on Him, there is this declaration of fulfillment. All that we just read, fulfilled in me, He's saying. Today, fulfilled. But, we have to ask, what exactly is He fulfilling? What exactly is fulfilled? And so we need to look closer at this text that comes from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. The first part of the Scripture reading Talks about what? The Spirit of the Lord upon me, anointed me, right? It's pointing us to the most significant character in Isaiah's prophecies, if you're familiar, especially in, in chapters 40 to 55. The messianic servant. The messianic servant. It's the one who we read in, in like chapter 42, verse 1, and 48, 16, comes with the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is going to be upon this servant, and this servant is the one held out to the exiles of Israel as their hope, as the one who's going to bring in salvation. And Jesus is saying in this text, that servant from that book or scroll, me, is me. Second part of the Scripture reading there in, in Luke 4, 18 and 19, the second part of the Scripture reading describes the mission of this servant. Why was he anointed? What was the purpose of this anointing with the Spirit? What was he going to do? You see it there. Good news to the poor. Liberty to the captives. Sight to the blind. Liberty to the oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is what the servant has come to do. And this is what Jesus has come to do. Now the background to the text in Isaiah, bear with me, this is, this is important. The background to the text in Isaiah and this year of the Lord's favor is what the Jews would call the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee, which you can read about in Leviticus 25. The year of Jubilee came as the last layer in the extensions of the Sabbath principle. I hope I'm not losing you. <laughs> Stick with me. Do you remember the Sabbath? you remember kind of the things that unfolded with the Sabbath principle? I'll, I'll, I'll show you here in just a moment. 
It begins with God, where all things need to begin, right? He creates heavens and the earth, six days, then he rests on the seventh day. And we're given this indication that it's kind of this royal rest that goes on forever. Because every other day has, you know, there was, there was evening, morning, or morning, evening, sixth day, morning, evening, fifth day. We don't get that on the seventh day. It just seems like he's done, it goes on. This royal kind of rest that he enters into. And then, because we are created in his image, he wants us to be patterned after him. And so when he, when he, when he redeems Israel, makes them his people, he says, okay, he gives them first, first kind of layer of, of, of extend, extending this principle. He gives them the Sabbath day, right? So six days you're going to work, just like me. Seventh day, rest from your labor. But it goes on. This principle extends into a Sabbath year, right? So there's going to come a time after six years of working the soil and all this stuff that you're going to let the land lay fallow. It's going to get its rest. Sabbath year, and then, and then, we reach this outermost layer, the highest expression, if you will, of this principle, the jubilee, the year jubilee. It is essentially the Sabbath year of Sabbath years. So after seven cycles of those Sabbath years, so after 49 years, on the 50th year, the year of jubilee is proclaimed says something in Leviticus. I wanted to read you. It says this, Leviticus 25.10. You shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. And it's crazy what would happen. Any land that was kind of changed hands over the, the course of those 50 years would go back to the original inheritors that God, the lines that God delineated back when He was giving the tribes the land. And then any debts that you owe to your brothers or sisters would be canceled. And any debt slaves, those that were enslaved because they owed things, freed, released, redeemed. And then again, the land would be allowed to lay fallow and get rest. This year of Jubilee was a year that the poor, the indebted, the oppressed, the captive loved. Don't you just imagine that, right? He's like, I am free. <laughs> I can't wait for the year of Jubilee. But it was a year that the, that the entrepreneurial, the captors, and the ones that are trying to get ahead, they probably loathe it. I worked so hard. I got all this land and I accumulated all this wealth and they owe me all this money and now it's just gone. It was a year that reminded the people of God that the earth and the fullness therein belongs to Him. And that we, His people, belong to Him. And He does with us as He pleases, right? We are not our own. It was a year that reminded the people of His gracious, loving character. That He goes after the poor and the oppressed and wants to see them raised up. And he doesn't want people to get all self-exalted in their own efforts. He wants them to see it all comes from him. His grace is being pictured here. And, and it was a year, as Isaiah gets at in Isaiah 61, that was pointing forward to this final, ultimate liberation in the new heavens and the new earth this new thing when we would finally be free. The year of Jubilee is a picture of that. You want to know how I know that? number of reasons, but one of the most significant, all you have to do in Isaiah 61 is read the few verses before. You see the context of what's going on there and you go, wow, okay. I'm going to read you just a couple of verses from that to set the stage. Speaking of the new Jerusalem, that God's going to build. Isaiah writes in verse 19. We'll just read that one and then skip down. The sun shall be no more. Your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light and your your God will be your glory. What does that sound like? No more sun? God's going to be your sun. That sounds like Revelation 21, 23 and Revelation 22, 5. 
That sounds like the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth. That sounds like something crazy that God's going to do in breaking all things new. And then you get down to verse 22 because it kind of goes on and he says this, I am the Lord. In its time, I will hasten it. And then you read on into 61. That's the verse right before. Here's Here's the servant with the Spirit upon him. And Jesus says, I am that servant. This is my mission. The new creation work pictured in the year of Jubilee will be hastened by the Lord in its time, brought in by the Messianic servant who has upon him the Spirit of God. And Jesus, in a little synagogue, little town, reads that text, puts it down, sits down and says, Today, fulfilled. That time that God said He would hasten and He would make it start to happen, is now. Today, I declare to you the year of the Lord's favor. Today, the Jubilee begins. Christ is shown to be the new Creator. The pioneer of God's new creation. And he marches forward and we watch this through the gospel. We watch this from this point on. It's crazy. Almost, you can't even get out of chapter 4 without seeing it. He's proclaiming good news to the poor. And he's freeing the oppressed from Satan and all these other things. And he's healing the sick. And doing all that he just said is in that text. But all of his earthly ministry was heading towards something that no one would expect. Though everyone should have. All these physical manifestations that we'll see as we read through the gospel of his messianic identity were partial and anticipatory of the fuller, even now spiritual liberation he would accomplish for us in his death and resurrection. The people he would heal that were sick or raised from the dead, they would die again. There's something deeper he's going after. He's going to Jerusalem to die and race again. This is the next scene that Luke drops us into as we trace this word. And it's why in your notes there, a new exodus. Let's go to Luke 9, 28 to 31. Our word shows up in Luke 9, 31. It's translated here as accomplished, but again, you could also say fulfilled. Luke 9, 31, but I want to give us context by reading verse 28. Jesus has has taken the three up on the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember, we're trying to unfold. What does Luke mean when he says, the things fulfilled among us? So the sorts of things he's talking about. Luke 9, 28. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, key word, which he was about to accomplish. There's our word, fulfill at Jerusalem. So with the first part of our text, what do we see? You see this splendor and glory. You see His face. You literally see in His face the glory of God, right? You see the glory of this Messianic servant that He really is the one who's going to bring in all things new. He is the one commissioned by God to do this. But, things take a turn at verse 30. Things take a turn at verse 30. There's two men talking with Him. Moses and Elijah. And they're speaking of what? His departure. His departure. Which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Where is Jesus going? To what are they referring? Nothing less than the crucifixion, resurrection event that was about to happen. And Jesus, right before this, had been had just started to share with his disciples, this is what's going to happen. Look at Luke 9, 22. He says this to them, The Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. The disciples don't get it. Even though He's being as blunt as He can, they don't get it. 
And then they go up the Mount of, of, of Transfiguration. And now Moses and Elijah are talking with Christ about this. As if to say, all the Old Testament is pointing towards this. The law and the prophets pointing towards this departure in Jerusalem that the Messiah would accomplish. It's all been going to that. But there's something hidden beneath our translation that I want to bring to our attention. That's where I get this idea of a new exodus from this text. Because the word departure in the Greek, and maybe probably in your ESV it's footnoted, is exodos. doesn't take a Greek scholar to know what that, what that word is. It's exodus. It's the word that in the, in the Greek Old Testament is used for the event. The, 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 the what would you say, the initial, the, 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 the birth narrative, if you will, of Israel event. The exodus, when they were made the people of God, when they were redeemed and called His own. The exodus, now, in the Old Testament is being likened to this exodus that Jesus is going to accomplish at Jerusalem. There's a line being drawn. This critical event in the people of God's history. Jesus is going to do something even greater. He's going to bring that and all that that stood for to fulfillment there on Calvary's hill. Christ's exodus in Jerusalem would lead to the ultimate liberation and would fulfill all that the first exodus symbolized. The new creation is going to come through a new exodus. But here's the kicker. This is the stumbling block. This is the hard point. The new exodus is going to involve the suffering and death of the Lord's anointed. You don't really see that uh, in the first Exodus story, at least among the, the children of Israel, right? They're all getting through, and it's the bad guys that are dying. <laughs> but in this new and greater Exodus, Jesus, the only good guy, would become like the dead Egyptian in the water. He would have to throw himself against the waters of this sea to make a way for the people of God to walk through on dry land. And this is what becomes such a stumbling block for the people. You remember Peter's response. This is interesting on on the Mount of Transfiguration. The same Peter who, when Jesus began to to speak of his suffering and death that was awaiting him, the same Peter who responded to that with, far be it from you, it's not going to happen. Suffering is not in the cards for my Messiah. That St. Peter, when he sees the, the scene of glory on the Mount of Transfiguration, when he sees all this going on, says, now this is good. I like Jesus when he's lit up. <laughs> I like it when there's glory all around. He says, let's pitch tents and stay here. This is what I want. And here's what's interesting. Peter is kind of an illustration of, of the spirit of this age, right? We want to get to the glory without the shame. We want to get to all things new without dealing with what was broken in the first place. And that's not how Jesus is going to do it. Because, at bottom, what we find, all things wrong, it's coming from here. It's coming from my sin, right? The root, at the root, of the pain and the suffering and the, 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 the death in this world is the sin of humanity. And I'm involved. And God's curse upon it. So if all things new is going to truly emerge, it has to deal with that serious issue. Which is why no politician can fix it. Only Jesus can do this. I mentioned earlier that his death would be unexpected to the Jewish people. They wouldn't get it. But that it shouldn't have been. It shouldn't have been unexpected. It shouldn't have been a surprise. Why? God's been preparing for it all over the Old Testament. All over the Old Testament. Let me just use some of the things we've looked at here to show you. The Messianic servant of Isaiah 61, right? 
that, that everyone was, was hoping would, would bring in this, the, the age of God's salvation, the messianic servant, none other than the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. You know this? Smitten, stricken by God and afflicted. Pierced for our transgressions. Crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. The Messianic servant with the Spirit upon Him, bringing in the new creation, would do it by being put to death as an offering for our sin. That's how the servant's going to do it. They didn't say it. They were confused. Why are you talking about dying? It's supposed to be the king. Or the year of Jubilee. This is amazing. You want to know the day that the year of Jubilee was announced in Israel? The day of atonement. That's uh, 25.9, I believe, in case you don't believe me. It's incredible. On the day of atonement, blow the trumpet. And and proclaim liberty in the land. You remember the day of atonement? One day of the year when the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies and make atoning sacrifice for all the nation. And God, preparing His people for this new creation reality, dealing with what went wrong in the old, says, if you want to get to the Jubilee, you've got to get through atonement and sacrifice. Or the Exodus What precipitated the Exodus event? None other but the slaughter of the Passover lamb. That was the final kind of curse or whatever, what do they call it? Plague that was there in in Egypt that made them push them out. And the Passover lamb was in place of the firstborn sons of Israel. It was the substitute sacrificed in their place. And what happens after that? But they go into freedom. God's preparing them for this reality all over the scriptures. And yet, didn't see it. All of this, all of this is to help us see Christ as bringing the answer to its two most to the two most pressing questions that we have. What's wrong? I am. This heart is. I am the poor. I am the captive. I am the blind. I am the one oppressed by the devil that's doing his bidding. I am the one that needs this liberation. I am the problem. And who, what can make it right? He can. And He is via His death and resurrection, via this new exodus. He is the only one who's able to deal with all things old and bring in all things new. Finally, go to Luke 24, 44-46. The most tragic of all realities, as we read the scriptures, is that because sin is the problem, and it's in us, we're so blind, so poor, so oppressed, so dead, we don't even see anything glorious going on when he's dying on that cross, naturally. Natural man looks, we we did this in 1 Corinthians, natural man looks at the cross and sees foolishness, weakness, an utter failure, not an overwhelming triumph. By nature, we look upon the cross of Christ like those two on the road to Emmaus. You remember them? Oh, it's it's so sad. It's just like, it's almost humorous, but it's horrible. They're looking at the resurrected Christ as they're walking and they're going, ah, we thought He was the one. We thought that Jesus was the Messiah who was going to bring in the new age, the dawn of salvation, the year of the Lord's favor, and He's not. Haven't you heard? He's dead. And they're looking at Him. (laughs) 
That's how deep the problem goes. We don't see anything glorious in what he's doing there. We don't even see the reason for it. We don't know we're the problem and he's offering himself for us. But he is. And so there's one more step in the redemptive program. We've got a new creator, new exodus. How is he going to make us a new humanity if we can't see him, receive him, believe in him, trust him? He's got to do it. Truly I say to you, John 3, 3, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. We need to be resurrected by the resurrected Christ if we're to see in Him our glory and be made new. And this is exactly what is pictured for us in the final scene that our word shows up with reference to Jesus. Luke 24, 44-46. He's now appeared, resurrected to His disciples Last verses of this gospel, pretty much. This is what we read. He said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. There's our word. Everything fulfilled. Then, and here's the key, He opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead the same thing he'd been saying all along that they never got here now after his resurrection victory he says see and believe and they get it they get it He's constituting a new humanity around His crucifixion, resurrection, accomplishments. He's opening eyes so that people see in Him their only hope of being made new. And that's what they see. He's the firstborn from the dead. And He's the firstborn among many brothers. If He's just the firstborn from the dead, we're in trouble. Because it's just Him exalted and we're still down here. But He's the firstborn among many brothers. Which means we have now the spirit of adoption and He's coming back for us. And His destiny is mine. And any who would trust in Him. Suddenly we see He is a new Creator who through this new and greater exodus is establishing a new humanity and ultimately new world. He is going to fix all that's broken and bring in all things new. Suddenly we see the things that have been accomplished among us. This brings us back to verse 1. My prayer for us, and I'll close here, For those of us who have yet to see, those of us who have yet to see in Christ anything worthy of of, of glory and honor and praise, my prayer is that the veil would be lifted, even this morning. You would see in Him the answer. The answer. Where do I look? It's right in front of you all along. My prayer is that, like the two on the road to Emmaus, after they're reflecting on it, they say, didn't our hearts burn within us when He was talking to us on the road, when He opened to us the Scriptures? Didn't our heart just burn? I remember this in my Christian walk when I was sitting out there where you are and it felt like God was just talking to me. I shouldn't have said Christian walk. It was before I was a Christian. As I was, He was drawing me to Himself. like, what? It's like God is in this room. Jesus is in this room and He's talking to me. And my heart is burning within. There's something about His words. Something about the Scriptures. Something about this Christ. Maybe He is the only answer. And I'm praying for those who have already trusted in Christ. Because it's not just this kind of, well, we trust and then we're done. It's, It's hard when it's your kid in the hospital at midnight or when it's your wife who's flatlining from cancer. Is Jesus enough? 
I mean, my prayer is that God in the midst of our trials would continue to keep our eyes open to Christ as the pioneer of God's new creation. His resurrection vindicates the reality that He is taking all things old, all things painful, all things hard, all things seemingly utterly fail, utter failures like the crucifixion and making something new from them like the resurrection. That's what He's doing. He's proven He can do it. His resurrection spirit in us is His promise that He will do it in our lives. He's the one who's begun and will ultimately finally fully make all things new. And I think that's what Luke is going to try to show us as we follow with Christ and look at all the things that have been accomplished among them. Let's pray. I know that was a, a, that was a Bible study. <laughs> Lord, I but I pray it was so much more than that. I pray that as the Scriptures are open, God, that people's hearts would be burning within them. That people would see, man, I don't want to go to the latest and greatest. I don't want to go to, to the next thing that our culture is putting forward as what's going to save. I want to go to the only one. The one who's been spoken of from the beginning. The one who accomplished all these things among us so we would know He is the answer. I want to go to Him. Jesus, I pray that You would draw people to Yourself in this moment as we worship You. This song made me think, Lord, of um, the heavenly scene in Revelation. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And there's something, there's something terribly wrong with that scene. If you are so holy, what are sinners doing there? What are we doing there? We know how you did it. We glory in the sacrifice of our Savior who did away with all things wrong so that we could be a part of all things right. We worship you, God. You're holy and yet you've brought us in. Thank you. Put our hearts back together. Help us to fight. Help us to trust as we make our way to the heavenly shore. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.